This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 473. The publishers and I, we made a, a very clear decision that this was not just going to be for visual artists. This was going to be a fill in the blank, whatever kind of art you do. Whether you're a musician, photographer, painter, writer, dancer, singer, or any other creative with aspirations of making a living from your art, this is the perfect time to turn your creative ideas into a sustainable business. With gatekeepers no longer controlling the market, anyone with a laptop and a dream can make a thriving living from their creativity. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, you need to form a consistent reading habit. Information is coming at us daily from a myriad of places, but despite all the advances in technology, I still feel that books, the best of which are curated for you right here on this program, are still the best way to learn. In just a moment, we'll be joined by Miriam Schulman. She's author of a book called Artpreneur, the step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. I'll be asking Miriam to share about how changing even just one limiting belief can unlock all kinds of success for you. We'll walk through her passion to profit framework that she outlines in the book. Why making too much money at your current job shouldn't be a hindrance to making a full-time living from your art and much, much more. You've heard me talk in recent weeks about my online community called Read to Lead at jeffbrown.me. There we've got about 400 people in the community who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. They're rubbing elbows with one another. They're learning from each other. They're getting access to free content each and every week, including business book summaries every Sunday and much, much more, all for free. We're about to add a paid tier to the community very, very soon, which will include guest expert trainings, trainings for myself, Ask Me Anything sessions, office hours, and much, much more. That's coming in just a matter of days, so I hope you'll check it out, whether it's the free tier or one of the paid tiers you decide to jump into. It's all at jeffbrown.me. We talk about growth and development. We talk about note-making versus note-taking. We talk about side hustles and self-employment, personal branding, artificial intelligence. Again, there's access to exclusive content, weekly business book summaries, curated resources, community forum access, and more. JeffBrown.me, the place to go. Would love to see you there. JeffBrown.me. Miriam Schulman is a New York artist and founder of the Inspiration Place and the Artists Incubator Coaching Program. She helps artists from emerging to professional develop their skills, tap into their creativity, and grow thriving art businesses. Miriam left a lucrative Wall Street career in the wake of 9-11 to pursue art full-time. She's been featured in Forbes, What Women Create, The New York Times, Art of Man, and Art Journaling Magazine, as well as NBC's Parenthood and the Amazon series Hunters with Al Pacino. Her podcast, The Inspiration Place, graces the top 1% of all podcasts globally and has listened to in over 100 countries. Her new book is called Artpreneur, the step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. Well, Miriam, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for agreeing to uh, take the time to visit the Read to Lead podcast today. Well, thank you, Jeff. I know you must get a lot of books, and (laughs) I'm grateful and honored that you chose mine for this podcast. 
And I'm thankful for our mutual friend, Michael, uh, who I had on a couple of years ago, who made this introduction. Without his uh, intro, I, I might not ever have come across your book, and I'm so glad that I did, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to diving into it uh, today. But I, I wanted to start with a little bit of your backstory. Uh, I found this really intriguing, just uh, your time in the corporate world and the journey there, the decision you finally came to to transition out of that and, and, and doing what you're doing now. Yeah. So I worked for the same characters, although the real people that were featured in Michael Lewis's book, Liar's Poker. Mm. So if, if you're familiar with that book, that's who I worked for. Exactly. And then I followed that merry band of bond traders over to <laughs> Greenwich, Connecticut for their famous hedge fund that blew up. And I took a break from that world after they blew up. And then when the World Trade Center also blew up, mm. I decided I was never going back again. Yeah. That was an aha moment for me because I was thinking about it right at that time. And to see my former building burst in flames and melt to the ground on TV, like that was like, no, that's the sign from a universe. And, and, and you were in the adjacent building, were you not, during the, the Trade Center bombing in, in 93? Is that I right? was. I was. So Seven World Trade Center, it did melt down during the 9-11, uh, during 9-11. And I was in the Trade Center in, in 93. I, I actually told my therapist yesterday, I have to stop telling this 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 story because every time I do I re-traumatize myself. Oh boy! But when I no, I, I will tell it for I will not keep the listeners in suspense. So when in '93, most people don't remember this because it's been so eclipsed by 9/11. But there was a bombing at the World Trade Center. It was exactly 30 years ago. Mm. Um, like we just passed the anniversary a few months ago, and so I was there. This is before cell phones, and the power went out in the building. And my friend and I, we thought, okay, we'll go back. We'll take the stairs. To our desk, 37 flights of stairs up to our desk, because this is what you do. Mm. And when we got up there, we could see that actually the World Trade Center across right outside the windows, you could see they had broken the glass, the smoke was coming out, and helicopters were circling the building. It was not a con ed failure, and it had been bombed. But what were my coworkers doing? They were still working. Mm. And so that was the culture that you work even if there's a terrorist attack going on next door. So when 9-11 happened and they didn't evacuate those nearby buildings right away, remember when the, the first plane hit, they had 20 minutes. They could have evacuated the second tower and they didn't. Mm. That's why. This is the culture that I was in. And that's why I made that decision never to go back again. Mm. Well, we're the better for it. We have an amazing book to dive into here. So let's let's do that. And first of all, for the context of the rest of our conversation, have you kind of helped define for us who we're referring to when we're talking about artpreneurs specifically? I love this question. A lot of people look at this and say, this isn't for me. I'm not an artist thinking artist is only a painter. Right. And the publishers and I, we made a, a very clear decision that this was not just going to be for visual artists. This was going to be a fill in the blank, whatever kind of art you do, whether you're a a writer, a musician, theater. But Jeff, what happens is once you expand the definition and you make that so broad, truly anything could be replaced in <laughs> that, you know, what your art is. Then because and I'm sure you'll agree having read the book that a lot of these principles, they apply to any business. As they should, because to have a successful art business, you have to have a successful 
business. Mm -hmm. So the word artpreneur is just pointing out to my creatives. Yes, you cannot ignore the business side. You are an entrepreneur. (laughs) And you say that something that, that all of us struggle with, particularly those of us looking to sort of take a leap like this, uh, is limiting beliefs, those voices in our head. But you say that changing just one can unlock all kinds of success. Share a bit about how you view limiting beliefs specifically in, in this context. Okay. So anytime you're making any kind of leap, whether it's a huge leap, like I'm going to quit my job and become an artist, or even the smaller one, like, okay, you're in business and now you're going to do, I don't know, a webinar, anything that your brain is never done before and feels uncomfortable about, your brain will feel fear mm. because our, we, our brains have evolved for survival, not goal achievement. <laughs> and anytime we feel any sense of fear, what's going to happen? We're going to come up with all kinds of stories why this is a terrible idea. Terrible. Mm. And the smarter you are, Jeff, and the more creative you are, the better you're going to be at coming up with these stories. However, these aren't going to feel like stories to you. It's just going to feel like reasons, facts. Mm. But that's why they're limiting beliefs, because these are going to be thoughts that you're having that will limit you. So what happens to most people? They have fear. They will come up with doubt. I don't call them excuses because they don't feel like excuses. They feel like, no, this is just the way the world is. You know, I can't be selling now. There's a recession looming. <laughs> Something like that, or I can't sell now, it's a pandemic. So what happens? You have fear that leads to doubt. The doubt is going to lead to usually for most people, either not taking the action at all, or they're going to go into what I call procrastinate learning mode because they want to find out all the steps. Because if they find out all the steps, that will keep them safe because that's what they really want to do. They want to be safe. But what happens when you find out all the steps? You find a step that you're going to come up with reasons why that's a terrible idea. (laughs) It's a terrible idea. Or you're going to get conflicting advice. Oh, no, no, don't do a webinar, do a three-day boot camp, just like, you know, whatever it happens to be. So then then what happens? So you have fear that leads to doubt, doubt that's going to lead to overwhelm and confusion. And then what happens? Well, you'll procrastinate. Why? Because you don't know what the right step is. And that ultimately will lead to guilt because you're not following through with what you initially wanted to do. So that's why I say you have to clean up those limiting beliefs. Yeah, something that um, that I used to struggle with back when I became a voracious reader. I wasn't always a voracious reader, but when that first began, I was like, "Got to read another book. Got to read another book." And I wasn't doing a whole lot with the information <laughs> I was learning. It was just all about the learning, and oh, I'll take action at some point. But but yeah, there comes a time when when that becomes the obvious next step, and you've got to take it. I think uh, to your point, even when you may feel like you lack. Uh, the courage. Uh, Seth Godin said to me once, we don't take action because we believe. We believe because we take action. And then he punctuated that with, with do first, believe second. W- would, you, would you subscribe to that mantra? Not exactly. If, if you believe in something 100%, See, this is the problem. Like most people are are past focused. So they don't want to do something because they have never done it before. And they're using that as evidence that they can't. If you're a future focused person and you believe 100% that that result will ultimately work out for you and you believe that it ultimately will, you'll continue to take action until it does Mm. because you believe in that ultimate success. It's like what Thomas Edison said, oh, I just found a thousand ways this won't work, but he never gave up because he believed in that result. Now, what you're talking about or where I think maybe Seth meant by that 
I don't know what he meant by that, actually. But this is what I mean by this. Okay, so I have a lot of people who struggle with with confidence. And like we talked about how the fear leads to doubt, the doubt leads to confusion, overwhelm, and that leads to procrastination. Mm. So when I talk to clients who share with me, they procrastinate. And I ask them, why do you think that is? And in my book, I talk about Margaret. She's a real person. That's not her real name. That's just the name I gave her in my book. Mm-hmm. But we're going to use Margaret. So Margaret said to me, and it, Mar- I've heard this a million times, not just from Margaret. And Margaret said to me, oh, I procrastinate because I lack confidence. Mm-hmm. I said, no, it's the other way around. You lack confidence because you procrastinate. And here's why, Jeff, mm. the definition of confidence, if you like go to the Googles, you go to dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster, the definition of confidence is trust, is trust. Trust in yourself. Self-confidence is just trust in yourself. And every single time you don't do what you say you're going to do, you erode that self-trust. And every time you do what you say you're going to do. So maybe this is how you can interpret Seth's thing, like action first, then belief. I would say action first and then confidence, but Mm. I do think you need to believe. So I would say believe action, then confidence. Mm. So every time you do what you say you're going to do, regardless of what the result is, you build your confidence because you build your self-trust. I know this was the case for you in a corporate job where you were doing quite well financially. It can be that much tougher to want to make a transition like this because you got, you know, sort of the golden handcuffs. What do you, what do you say to those who feel they, they earn too much money to be able to actually pursue their passion, their art full time? Yeah, well, I'm going to question that that story you're coming up with. So what happened for <laughs> what happened for me is I actually gave myself, you know, I was yeah, I was making my a lot of money. So it was 1990 2000 when I finally quit my job and then in the year 2000 I was making multiple six figures. So I put aside, I think it was, I forget if it was ten or twenty thousand dollars, and I gave myself a deadline to start making money from that. And I so I had that set aside. So I did have that set aside. So I did have the luxury. So I think if somebody's making too much money, I don't know why you're not, why you don't, why you can't start a business. One less speedboat. I don't know. I don't know what you're spending <laughs> your money on. Well, talk about the uh, the combination, this sort of triad you reference in your book of needing to, we talked a little bit about believing in yourself, but believing in yourself, your art, and your buyer all at the same time. You have to have all three working in conjunction with one another, right? Yeah. I mean, we've all heard in, in self-development books and business books, you have to believe in yourself. You have to <laughs> believe in what you're doing, your art. Yay. But I don't hear many people talk about, you have to believe in your buyer. And that actually could sabotage, not not understanding that third part of the belief triad can actually sabotage you more, Mm. like understanding that piece. So let me give you an example. Jeff, if I were going to sell you my painting for $5,000, when you're going to make that decision, you're not trying to decide if Miriam Shulman is worth $5,000. You're not trying to decide if my art is worth $5,000. If you want my painting, Jeff, what you're trying to decide is if you're worth spending $5,000. And this goes, whatever we're talking about, is it a coaching package? Then your client's trying to decide if they're worth investing that money in. Is it a website? They're trying to decide if they're worth investing in. And when we lose sight of that and we make it about us, believe in ourselves and believe in our art, when we make it about us, we can sabotage it. Because if I have any doubts about you, 
you will pick up on that. Mm. And the brain hates uncertainty. So I have to feel that I have a hundred percent belief in you as well as my buyer. And I'm not doubting that. The the example I give in the book is from the movie Pretty Woman. Richard Gere gives Julia Roberts his gold card so that she can buy some nicer clothes. She's she's a hooker in the movie. Okay. So she but she's still dressed as a hooker. She goes to Rodeo Drive and the mean salespeople won't wait on her. We all think we're not the mean salespeople, but how many times have we said to ourselves, I don't think they'll go for that higher package. So I'm going to offer this smaller one Mm. or something of that nature. So how many times have we self-sabotaged? We didn't we didn't return the call because we think we're bothering them. That's what lack in your buyer looks like. Mm. One of the things that when I'm talking with content creators that often comes up is, you know, Jeff, how did you you reach that tipping point? How did you become successful at what you're doing? And the unsexy answer is always consistency and committing to creating and showing up and putting it out there. I want to unpack your, your, your passion to profit framework that you highlight in the book, starting with the first step, which is production. Talk about consistently building a body of work and, and committing to your creative time. Oh, there's so many things that we can unpack here. <laughs> so, uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start off. So we're sitting here on a podcast, and I'm sure you believe in this, Jeff. You you put out a podcast every week. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Every week. I remember in 2018, and we right when I was starting my podcast, I went to podcast movement, and I forget the guy's name, the Blueberry Blueberry founder, and he mm. stood up there and he said. Uh, you want to do seasons? If your season one ends on a Tuesday, guess what? Your season two starts the next Tuesday. It's like mm-hmm. the, the number one thing you have to do is be consistent. And I'm sitting there, I'm taking notes in the front row. I'm being a good girl. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm committing to that. And I have to say, he is right. It is so boring when people want to know, like, how did I build my podcast? It is really the consistency that mattered more than anything and the showing up time after time after time. Mm. And then the other thing was being willing to put it out there when it was still an ugly teenager. <laughs> because so many people, and I'm looking, I'm looking at artists who are trying to develop their style. I'm looking at fellow podcasters. I'm looking at anyone with their baby business, life coaches, whoever you are. There's so many of us who we want to be what I call sleeping, like sleeping beauty, where this, the fairies in the Disney movie Sleeping Beauty, they take this little baby and they hide her into the woods. And the next time you see her, she's a fully grown princess. <laughs> she's fully grown and ready to get married. You know, we don't see the pimples, the braces, the glasses. And so many of us, we want to hide our babies and perfect them and keep them put away and keep working on. No, no, we can't send that proposal proposal out, that book proposal out, it's not it's not ready yet. Mm. And that is one of the steps that I talk about in the production plan is being willing to, first of all, what I said, love your baby now and putting it out there for feedback. So back in 2018, my business coach then was Jason Van Orden, and I was ready to put it out. And I said, like, wait, this isn't a good time. It's August. Nobody listens to podcasts in August. And I remember him saying to me, Miriam, it's never going to be the right time. Just put it out there. You need feedback. Mm, yep. Like I said, I was a good girl and I listened. <laughs> a big fan of, of Jason uh, in, in his work. And, I, and if I'm not mistaken, since you launched, 
you've not missed an episode. You've not missed a week, right? I have not. There was one time where there was some confusion in my back office team people <laughs> where there may not have been something. And I like, I screamed and yelled and yeah, I got my way. Like, you know, like I don't know what happened here, but that was recorded a month ago. So it better be on the air. <laughs> I, I wasn't as serious as I would have liked to have been the first four and a half or so years with, with putting out episodes every, every week. But since December 2017, I know something clicked and, and I've not missed a week. Congratulations. Um, another area that trips a lot of people up, I know, is, is pricing. That's the second part of this framework. But as I read your book, uh, you just seem to have a way of just making this super simple. It's not rocket science, or at least it doesn't have to be. At the end of the day, it's just about doing some simple math, really, right? That's step one. So in the pricing section of the book, there's like 14 lessons. I call it Think Like an Abundant Artist. And I'm pulling from even research. I mean, I was editing this book up into the very last minute because things have changed so much during the pandemic and the way people shop with Amazon. Um, buying behaviors have changed dramatically. However, what you what you mentioned about the math is so many people, they want to skip to some of the to, to to better sales strategy or building the audience or or some of these other things that I talk about without doing the math first. And if you get the math wrong in the beginning, mm. no amount of improving your sales technique is going to help you. So here's why. Let me explain because I feel like I'm losing the punchline. So <laughs> I have people come to me and they'll say, literally, Miriam, my problem is I need a bigger audience because I just don't have enough people to sell my hand-painted rocks. <laughs> and it sounds humorous, but literally, this is what people send me emails about. Or mm -hmm. I need a bigger audience because I sell greeting cards and there's not enough people who send cards these days. Says, no, that's not your problem. The problem mm -hmm. is, is you're selling greeting cards. They're $5 each. <laughs> or $10 each even. You need 5,000 people. And then sometimes it's not just about a low cost item. Sometimes it's because they have something that could be priced higher. They just don't because of the limiting beliefs we talked about. They believe cheaper is easier to sell, which it isn't. Mm -hmm. So they they have some belief, but what they need to do is just say, what is my capacity for, for creating this item or putting out this item? If, using website design, how many hours does it take you? How much can you take on? If you were fully booked, so your capacity, what can you produce, production plan, times what you're pricing it on. Not calculus, just A times B. Does that number give you what you want? Mm. And so many people, it doesn't. And if that's you, don't feel bad because I remember early on in my career sitting down with a friend of mine and we were all into law of attraction and manifestation, all this. And we realized that we can't manifest it. We don't have enough artwork right now. You know, it's like we don't, we didn't produce enough. Mm. You know, related to that is, is the third step in the process, the prospecting plan. Why do you say that, that, that building a list of people who love what you do and will also pay top dollar is not as hard as you, you, you think it is? Yeah, I think that too many people are, like I said, are looking at the cheaper is easier to sell. Now, I just put out a book that you can get on Amazon for $17. Okay. And I have a $2,000 coaching program that covers the same material. And I can tell you it is much easier to sell the $2,000 coaching mm. program than the $18 book. I mean, I've literally had people tell me, like, I just don't have room for that. <laughs> like, you do know that this is in the book. And it's not that everything is 
is in the book, of course, and it's right. you know not coaching, but but just from experience, I know it's much easier sometimes to sell a high end item. One of the examples I love comes from Dan Kennedy. He talks about in his no BS pricing strategy about how with Rolex watches, it's impossible to sell a Rolex watch for forty-seven dollars because that would be a fake. <laughs> but even if I were to go on eBay and list it for four hundred dollars. I think I'd have a really tough time selling it because we know a Rolex should be 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. So in that situation, it's easier to sell that for 5,000 than $400. Well, I, I know for me, I, I can I can attest to that, uh, having offered a number of coaching programs uh, in the past and still do. The times where I've raised my prices with each incremental increase, it seems to become and get easier and easier and easier to sell those those coaching packages. Um, I've never been able to explain that, but I keep asking myself, you know, where's the where's the ceiling? Because I don't I don't seem to have hit it yet. <laughs> keep going. So there's research where they did blind taste tests with wine, and they late mislabeled wine as being more expensive, and people valued the the wine that was labeled as more expensive as tasting better, even though it was wasn't. The, the more expensive wine. So basically, the the price gives an immediate perception of value. Mm. That's why it's not easier to sell something cheaper. I mean, so Jeff, do you have pets? Yeah, I've got four in the next room right now. <laughs> okay. So if your dog needed, or, or cat, I don't know what kind of pet you have, but dogs. If, okay. If your dog needed a very expensive surgery, you're not going to go shopping around for the cheapest vet. You'll probably just go with your vet. Yeah. And so many of us, think that price is the deciding factor, it isn't. And that's another place that we sabotage sales, especially in that sales conversation when we make it about price and we turn it into a transactional experience, then you lose the plot. Because remember, we talked about what somebody's thinking about is not our price. It's they're thinking about them. And that is not the deciding factor. They're thinking about their experience they're going to have. Whether that's a product or a service, what experience are they going to get? It seems that a lot of us spend maybe too much time always trying to find the new customer, the next customer, when maybe the best customer is the one who's already bought, who's 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 already there. What are some practical ways we can turn our prospects into repeat buyers and and raving fans? Yeah, so. I have, that's why I wrote the, the section, love your buyer. The example I give in the book that does come from the art world is there were these two collectors from Baltimore, Cone, the Cone sisters, who were uber, uber wealthy. Their family supplied the cotton for Levi Strauss and the uniforms for World War One, And they were friendly with Gertrude Stein, who they knew from Baltimore. So when they made their first trip abroad, she introduced them to her circle, Hemingway and Picasso and Matisse. And at the end of Etta Cohn's life, she was able to bequest her art collection. She, they have a wing at the Baltimore Museum of Art with her art. And in that collection, there are 100 Picassos and 700 Matisses. <laughs> wow. So you have to ask yourself, why did Matisse outnumber Picasso seven to one? Because this is not a question of how much money she had. She could, you know, she could have easily bought whatever she wanted. And Picasso's a great artist too. Mm. And the reason why the curators point to is they have 
a, a wealth of all her letters that went back and forth between Matisse and Cohn. So he basically nurtured that relationship. He sent her works in progress pictures. He let her know when she, he had a new collection coming out. What does that mean for us modern sellers? Email marketing. <laughs> and, and just nurturing those relationships, right? That's right. That's right. And treating your best customers that way. Like, and it's not about being pushy and salesy. It's about sharing. Let, you know, it was a service he was giving to her by letting her know, um, this is a piece I'm working on. I think this will look good in your collection, kind of advising her on that. Yeah. I, I loved that story in the book. What are some practical ways, Miriam, that you sort of stay on top of things? Uh, your last part of the, of the, uh, of the passion to profit model here is, is the productivity plan. What, what do you do to stay focused on your goals? Yeah, I have a paper planner in front of me every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I identify my top three priorities for the week and my goals. And the other thing that I do for myself that is super important is I have another column for my wins. And mm-hmm. so I write this on my calendar and it's not, I don't use anything that fancy. The, the one I use is the planner pad, but I just make mm-hmm. a column. This is my wins. And as things happen, as I close sales, as I do what I say I'm going to do, I write them down because we as humans, our brains have evolved for survival. We have a negativity bias and we tend not to focus on our wins, but we need those wins to keep us motivated. We need to keep reminding ourselves of everything that it's going well. Well, uh, before we wrap up with some questions that are not directly related to the book, what haven't I asked you from the book that you wished I would have? Oh, you asked me so many good questions. <laughs> and I'm trying to think if there are any of my greatest hits I haven't played yet. <laughs> I, I, I think like the one thing we could say for wrapping up or a good place to wrap up is people always want to know when you said how to stay motivated. And this is why I ended the book with the chapter, Keep Marching Forward. And it's about, and we've been talking about this throughout, how you keep, if you believe and you're future focused, you keep taking action because ultimately you believe you will get there. Mm. So what I like to say is you keep marching forward, putting one foot in front of the other, not marching in place (laughs) and don't blame your boots. Mm. It's not the economy. It's not the circumstance. Keep marching forward and you will get the result you want. Well, I uh, appreciate uh, your time thus far. A couple more questions, if I may, not directly related to the book. I want to know what you've loved reading. What are the books that, that have impacted you the most that you maybe find yourself, Miriam, recommending to other people? Okay. So one that I that just came out, I think this year or late last year was by W. David Marks. It's Status and Culture. It's an excellent book. And it's a very nice compliment to some of the ideas I had uh, about how to create a signature style. But he really dives into that research of what makes a trend and how a point of view is always pushing against what came before it. And I, I love that book, especially in the age of AI, where AI does not have a point of view. And it's a great reminder that really great art always has a very strong point of view. Mm. I'm glad you said that because I had intended to ask you a question uh, related to, to AI. So it sounds like you've already begun addressing that with your clients who I'm guessing some of whom are concerned that a certain AI where you can type in a, a set of words into a prompt and get back a picture or in some cases video uh, that maybe their services are no longer needed. What, what do you tell them? 
Well, there's, there are certain commercial artists that are working in a way that maybe their, their kind of art won't be needed, but really great art has a point of view and usually a fresh point of view, not a recycled point of view. <laughs> so all these AI work by t- taking collective data. And my understanding is chat GPT, the data is like at least two years old. So it, it does not have a point of view. You can't even ask chat GPT, which is better, a hot dog or a hamburger. <laughs> It won't tell you. I'm an AI learning language model. I don't have an opinion. No, I don't have an opinion. Like the hot dog goes between two pieces of bread and it's long. You know, they will tell you exactly what it looks like. So really good art. It has a point of view and it makes it should make people sometimes should make people uncomfortable. I would be curious to know, we've touched on this with regard to some of the things you do for reaching goals and that sort of thing. But more specifically... Uh, especially as an author and someone who's done a fair amount of research to write your book, what are some of your your habits or tools or resources for just managing your your personal knowledge? Uh, things you come across that you consume that you want to want to capture and and maybe new ideas you want to connect to existing ideas and then crystallizing those thoughts down to your own new ideas and then creating from that. What what are some of the the tactics, the tips, the strategies you use to navigate all that. Yeah. So since this is the read to lead podcast, I want to share specifically how I read books. Is that is that gonna be yeah, good? That'd be okay. Great. That'd be great, so yeah. it's a physical book mm-hmm. and I read it with a pen and I'm underlining, I'm writing things. But then what I also do, which is super important, um, there's usually like a page in the front or the title page. I will write page 23, what it is that I really want. So I kind of build my own table of contents in the front of yeah. what were like the, the points that I really want to remember or I really want to be as takeaway. Now, there's something very powerful when you write. It helps both sides of your brain work together. Mm-hmm. This is why I, I do talk about this in the book in terms of goal, goal setting and goal achievement is that when you, when you write down, you are working both your left side and your right side of the brain. So if there's something that you really want to put into action in your life, just by writing it down, even if it's a takeaway from the book, it's more likely than to be processed in a way that your brain can then use it for your future. Mm, I love that. I often say that writing is thinking. Yes. And if you're if you're not writing, you only think you're thinking. Yes. <laughs> Miriam's book again is called Artpreneur, the step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. I've already recommended it to several people, including my own niece, who I think is going to benefit greatly from this. Uh, Miriam, thank you for your time for being here. I really appreciate it. And I absolutely loved your book. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. This has been a really fun conversation. Hope you got as much out of my conversation with Miriam as I did. If you'd like to follow up and look into the resources and links we talked about, including the book she recommended, you can go to the show notes page for this episode. That's found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 473. The number is 473 for episode 473. There you can also find links to connect with Miriam online, specifically LinkedIn and on Twitter. I encourage you to check out the Read to Lead community if you haven't already online at jeffbrown.me. Coming soon, multiple ways to participate in the community, both free and paid. Again, it's jeffbrown.me to find out more. Next time on the show, we welcome author Lisa Bragg, and we'll talk about her new book, Bragging Rights, how to talk about your work using purposeful self-promotion. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That will do it for this week. Hope to see you next time we come together. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.